Father, we're grateful again for another opportunity to study your word. Father, I pray, uh, first of all, that we would honor you as Lord in our lives, uh, that we would live in such a way that people question our hope. Father, give us opportunities to put these things into practice, to challenge uh, the unbeliever about the futility of his mind, uh, and show him that it is only uh, when he submits himself to you that he has any freedom whatsoever. And we, we ask these things for the glory of your Son. Amen. All right. If you uh, open your notes to page 11, uh, as is our custom, really quick review here. Um, we started. Um, Felicia, please grab that. Uh, we started uh, by by seeking <coughs> to show that scripturally we have to think of God as in a different category than the rest of creation. That God is set apart from the rest of creation. Um, the creator-creature distinction is a, is a big thing in what we're doing here. Um, that, that, and we, we particularly gave attention to um, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, particularly with Eve, that when, when Eve sinned, or when Eve was tempted, she had to take the position that she was, as a, as a mind, as a thinker, just as much a valid interpreter of reality as God, which means that even if she considers God as another legitimate opinion, she's not thinking of God as he is, right? She's thinking of God as a possibility, whereas God is, is by nature, necessity, okay? So we, we talked about how we think about God, that God has to be um, presupposed in order to get thought going. So, we need to think about why that is. Okay, I've asserted that. Why is it that the unbeliever, on his own worldview, has such problems um, coming up with anything like rational thought? Okay, so that's what we're that's what we're going to talk about next. Why? What is the what is the unbeliever's big problem? All right. So this is going to be the section uh, in your notes, page 11, uh, point two there, labeled the Trinity. Uh, I'm going to lecture a bit extemporaneously on this subject because I, I want to expand this just a little bit. All right, so this, that's where we're headed to the idea of the Christian Trinity, um, but we're going to get there from a slightly different angle than, than how I've gotten written in my notes. So here's a question for you. I want you to think, uh, don't, don't respond right away, but I'm going to take some responses, but I want you to think about this. Um, this desk is going to be a major player in our discussion tonight. So we have a desk here, right? I also have in my mind the idea of a desk. So here's the question for you, and I want you to think and think through the consequences of your position. Which of those is more real, the desk or my idea of a desk? Or the idea of a desk? Is the desk more real? Or is the idea of a desk more real? My first thought would be to say the desk is more real, but I got a feeling you're going to tell me. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, why would you be inclined to you say know, the desk is more real? Because it's physically there. Okay, that, and that's and that is a a very legitimate answer. Anyone else? Anyone else want to want to venture a guess? Could be a different kind of desk. What do you mean? What could be? Could be a desk that's like a, a sure, rather but than that, so, but so the, the question, which is more real, the idea or this, 
What, what, what's real? In your mind, that dust is real. The one that you're thinking about. Okay. So just like in my mind, God does exist. Sure, but but I can think of I can think of a number of things that aren't real, right? I can have ideas of things that aren't real. Unicorns, whatever, mm -hmm. monster and that. This is what this is what happens when you bring in an intellectual. <laughs> 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 so let, let's let's work our way through this, okay? Um, this is this is this is what's called in in, in philosophy the one and the many problem. The one and the many problem. That's in your notes somewhere. The one and the many problem. We're going to come back to this over and over and over again. In fact, once you get this idea, you'll realize that your whole life is made up of one and the many problems. All right. So let's talk about what that means. Um, there are two basic approaches to how I gain knowledge. Two basic approaches to how I gain knowledge or what I know. Um, we'll start with the more intuitive for us here and, 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 then, and then go to the other. Uh, most Americans, we'll, we'll, we'll say that, most, most, of, most of us, most of our friends, acquaintances, would, would be more sympathetic to what we call empiricism. Okay, empiricism. Empiricism means this. I, I know what I know, or I, I gain learning, gain knowledge through sense experience. Sense experience is my primary means of knowledge acquisition. When we talk about knowledge acquisition, okay, we're, we're, we're going to do a number of terms here right in a row that we need to keep straight. When we talk about uh, how I obtain knowledge, remember we, we introduced a word probably in the first lesson, epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. What, is, what, is, what, what does it mean for me to know? What is the proper object of knowledge? Okay, so empiricism is an approach to epistemology. Does that make sense? It's one possible answer to the question of how do I know? Well, I know by sense experience. All epistemologies entail, this is going to be a, a, a humdinger of a sentence, okay? All epistemologies entail a relevant metaphysic. Does that make sense at all? Okay. Metaphysics, uh, metaphysics asks us the question, what is real? What exists? Okay, what exists? When we're talking metaphysics, we're talking, what, what, what really exists? What's real? So that's the question I asked you at the beginning, beginning of this discussion. Is that desk real or is my, my idea of the desk real? So, if I'm an empiricist and I learn things by sense experience, which do you think the empiricist will say? Will the empiricist say that desk is real or the idea of the desk is real? The, the empiricist learns things how? Through senses. Through senses. So this thing's real. I see it. I, I, I can feel it. If I wanted to, I could taste it, but I'm not going to do that. Right? Um, so, so the empiricist says sense experience is the means to acquire knowledge. And so what's real is the physical universe, the things that I can experience. Now, 
Uh, well, let me, let me introduce the other side of that, and then we'll show the problems with both of them. The, the other approach to um, epistemology is what we would call rationalism. Rationalism. So the empiricist says, uh, you asked me the question, is there a desk in the next room? The empiricist answer, or the empiricist would, would solve that problem how? I'm going to go and look for the desk, right? If you blindfold me, I'm going to see if I trip over a desk. I'm going to find the desk by sense experience. The rationalist says, senses deceive us, right? And that's true sometimes, right? There are times where we, we thought we saw something that wasn't there, or we thought we heard something, and it, it just wasn't there, or something uh, really was there and we didn't see it, right? Sometimes that's the problem, right? I didn't see that other car. <laughs> And that can be the problem. Our senses deceive us. Um, and so, you're familiar with at least the name and the, the summary of his philosophy, or the first step of his philosophy. René Descartes, the French philosopher. And anyone know uh, Descartes' famous expression? You'll know it. I think, because. therefore I am. Okay. Let, let me tell you how he, got, how he gets there. Descartes says, uh, we inherit all sorts of beliefs, uh, but we found that often the beliefs that we inherit have errors in them, right? And, and so if, if we really want to know stuff, if we want to establish our thinking on something certain, we can't base it on everything that we've just heard. We need, we need a new foundation, But our senses deceive us. And so sense experience is not a good foundation for knowledge. So Descartes says, I need to find something that I can't doubt. Descartes says, I'm going to doubt everything until I find something that I can't doubt. Well, what couldn't Descartes doubt? He couldn't doubt that he was doubting. Right? You know, I'm do I doubt, I doubt, that I can't doubt that I'm doubting. That doesn't even make sense. So I doubt, therefore I must exist. That's, that's the I think, therefore I doubt, therefore I am. This is really the idea. Okay? Now, is Descartes, if I were to ask you, do you really exist? You'd be like, that's a stupid question. Look, right? <coughs> now, when you go look and you hit yourself, what basis for epistemology are you using? Empiricism. Is Descartes appealing to sense experience to prove his existence? No. Every part of Descartes' proof is where? It's in his head, right? Descartes could just be sitting around in his easy chair and prove that he exists. Okay, and, and there may be problems with Descartes' proof, but you know we'll, we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Descartes then is standing in a fairly long tradition. Um, Plato would be of the same Plato, T-O, not D-O-U-G, not Plato. Uh, <coughs> Plato, the philosopher. Uh, if you remember. Uh, you know, your, your studies in philosophy from way back when, if you, if you studied any philosophy, you may be familiar with Plato's cave. You ever hear of Plato's cave? The idea of Plato's cave is this. Um, if you picture all these people chained in a cave, and they're facing a wall, right? And behind them on a raised platform is a fire. And, and, and people will take objects and place them in front of the fire so that their shadows are cast on the wall where all the chained people are looking at the wall. 
Okay, so, so this is the, and, and, and the people in the cave get very good at identifying the shadows on the wall. You know, some of them are more adept than others, and, but this is all they know. They know the shadows on the wall. One day, one of the guys gets free of his chains, and he goes outside and, 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 and sees real light. He sees real objects, and he comes in, and he sees what's going on in the cave. Plato says that the object, objects of sense experience are really just shadows. The reality is the world of ideas. So this is, you see, this is totally opposite of, of empiricism. The rationalist, remember, every, every epistemology has a corresponding metaphysic. So the empiricist says, I learned by sense experience, so it's real or material things. The rationalist says, I learned by thinking, so it's really real or ideas. So we have our categories, right? This is a basic. This is really the basic outline of philosophy. These, there are there are various um, uh, various philosophers have tried to meld these two things, but these are the big categories that philosophy has been conducted in. Uh, really, Platonic uh, ideas that that ideas are what is real dominated from from the time of the invention of philosophy in ancient Greece until the Middle Ages, uh, at which point empiricism takes over. All right, so let's, let's consider the problems with, with both of these. The one and the many problem. Right. We have our desk here. Now, um, <coughs> we're all empiricists, right? We believe the desk is here because, you know, if we didn't believe the desk was here, we'd walk right into it. You know, it's... it's the, you know, if you if you told me the idea of the desk is real, I would say, kick the desk. You know, you'll see that it's real. You know, this that's unmistakable. You know, this is just American, right? That's just real, brother. Don't give me this nonsense about ideas. You know, I this is you know we've this put together in a factory. That's real, right? Okay. Um. <coughs> so I learn about this thing by my sense experience, right? I look it over. Uh, I get a good idea of what it is. Now, I finish learning all I can about my sense experience about this thing. And now I go over and I learn sense experience about this thing, right here, the one next to it. Here's the question. Are they the same? Are they the same? Dimensionally, they are. But, uh, Dimensionally, are they exactly the same? Almost oh, certainly not. There are differences all over the place, right? Different students carve their names into different ones, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're different. This one's got a big scratch in the seat. This one's got scratches, but in different places. Uh, we got a nice little pen mark on this one. Now, we walk in and we see both of those, and we say that both of those are what? Desks. Here's, here's a question for you. What property do all desks and only desks have? <coughs> they're solid. Okay, but there's a whole lot of other things that are solid. That's, I mean, that's very broad. That includes a lot more than desks. What do all desks and only desks have? The only thing you've got in common is the concept of what they're for. It's what they're for. And can I observe what something's for? Can I observe purpose? 
Is that something I learned by son's experience? That's rational. Okay. The, the reality is, by sense experience, even here, now this, this, this I'm going to mess with your head even a little bit more. Do I ever see the whole desk at one time? No. Okay. As I'm standing here, do I see the whole desk? No. Because you're seeing something different than I am. Right? And as I go around, if I'm going to learn anything about that, I have to have an idea in my head that, that puts all of these different sense experiences together. Does that make sense? Okay? So, so in, a, in, a, in, in a sense, if I want to just go on the basis of sense experience, here's, here's what's really neat about the way our knowledge works. You could walk into another classroom in this building that, that you've never been in before, and let's say it has totally different desks in, than, the, than the ones in here. And they may be really, really different. But you walk in, and what do you say when you see one? That's a desk. You've never seen it before, and yet you put it in a category. Now, how can you do that? Because you can't even articulate what all desks and only desks have, but you immediately put it into a category. The reality is, if you don't have those categories in your head, you can't know anything useful. Does that make sense? That, that if all I knew was my sense experience here, here's, here's something even, even crazier here. When I look at this thing, I look at it as one object. Is it one object in my sense experience? No. It's, it, I, I'm perceiving colors and shapes and angles and whatever, but I'm not per that's not really one object by my sense experience. That's something I rationally put on that. Does that make sense? This is getting really abstract, but, but you have to get this to, 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 to get the depth of this. You will see the unbeliever's predicament. Okay? That for me to call this thing a desk is an abstraction. That something sense experience doesn't permit on its own. I'll, I'll, I'll put this in, or we'll illustrate it a different way. Okay? So we talked about one in the many problems being all over the place. And you can immediately see how this is all over the place. right? You, continue, you, you continuously put things in categories. You assume, for instance, um, you, you're going to go to sleep tonight. You wake up in the morning and you, and you look at your spouse next to you and you assume that that's the same person. Right? <laughs> that, that, that was there when you went to bed. But the reality is, you have no way of knowing that on the basis of sense experience. Right? There's nothing in your sense experience that would allow you to prove that. All, all, that's, that's, a, that's a, something you're hopeful about. <laughs> but, but on a purely empirical point of view, you can't prove it. You know, there's a preponderance of evidence, and there may be no evidence against it. But, but maybe, so, so here's, here's where things get really crazy. Um, the, the existence of other minds. This is a very, very difficult question, right? 
I know that I think. I perceive my own thinking. Do you ever perceive anyone else's thinking? You, you perceive what seems, what looks like, you, you know, I, I'm looking at you right now, and you look like you're thinking, right? And you respond to me in a way that's, that's rational, based on what I've said to you. But do I ever experience your thinking? No, I experience my thinking. I don't experience your thinking the way you experience your thinking. How do I know, given empiricism, that you think? And the answer is, I can't. Frankly, empiricism should lead me to the conclusion that I'm the only thinker, which is an actual philosophical position called solipsism. I was, pointing, I was joking about this with Alicia. This, this school provides me with endless philosophy material because they've got all these quotes up in the hallway. And so there's a quote from Norman Vincent Peale, Mr. Power of Positive Thinking, right? Um, and, and it says, you change your mind and you change the world. That's really consistent with solipsism, because solipsism says, the only thing I can experience is my own thinking. So if I change my thinking, the world changes. Right? Because that's all that exists, is what's in my mind. There is no external world. I, empiricism leads me to a lot of really serious dead ends. Uh, David Hume, okay, this is a very, very important philosopher for us, was a was an, uh, Scottish philosopher, 1700s, 1800s, right around there. He was a skeptic, because he was a, he was a good, consistent empiricist. Okay? So, so, some of the things that Hume told us, I want you to think, okay? Um, wa watching um, billiard balls on a table, right? Can you see a billiard ball move? For, for the sake of argument, yeah, we can see one move. Can you hear the sound of it hit another billiard ball? Yeah. Can you see the other billiard ball move? Have you seen causation? Is that something you pick up with sense experience? And the answer is, no, that's something you, 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 you overlay on the situation. Sense experience, does vision pick up causation? What does vision pick up? Things that are visible. Is causation a visible thing? That's a mental thing, right? You can't see, here's a box of causation, right? <laughs> causation is conceptual, it is not empirical. So what, what Hume says is, given empiricism, I can't assume that, that causes cause effects. That's not something I learned by my sense experience. It gets even worse. Right? Here's, here's the example in the notes. I have a ball in my hand. Right? I tip my hand, and what happens to the ball? It falls. Right? So pick it back up, and I repeat the experiment. It's a very elaborate experiment. I tip my hand, and the ball falls. I do it a billion times. Right? Billion and one ball sitting precariously in my hand. My hand begins its dramatic tilt. Can I know, on the basis of empiricism, that the ball will fall if I tip my hand? And the answer is, no. Have I experienced that? 
If I experience the thing that's about to happen, I have not experienced a thing that's about... I can't experience something that's in the future, can I? Oh, okay. I can't know that. Now, I say that's similar to all the other things, but that's like asking, why, are, why do I put these things in the same, the, the same category of similarity? And we've already said it's really hard to do that because, the, you know, here's a somewhat trivial example. As a guy... Sometimes you walk in, you're, you're a visitor at someone's house, and you walk into the bathroom, and it's, you know, the, the, the lady of the house is decorated very uh, elaborately in there, and you wash your hands in the sink, and then you're faced with a dilemma. <laughs> are these towels towels, or are these towels decorations? Right? Because they look an awful lot like a towel. <laughs> But this is the one in the many problem, right? There are so many similarities, but what are the relevant similarities? And sometimes, you know, in, in, in certain instances, it seems so obvious to us, we don't think it's a problem. But the reality is, once you start trying to articulate it, it's a mess, right? And, and, and so how do I know? You know, how do I know that, that, that someone's not just trying to trick me? You know, this, this is a desk. How do I know that that's, you know, not a, a, an antique, you know, it's, it's, it's not for the same purpose, right? We talk about purpose. If we identify desks by purposes, you know, I, I visited um, uh, some, some, you know, you go to Henry Ford Museum, right? You go to Greenfield Village and you walk into some of these, these buildings and there are things that look like this, but they're not for the purpose of sitting and writing, right? They're for the purpose of what? Looking at. Because you try to sit and write on it. And yeah, you'll see, they're not for that purpose anymore. You know, when you're tackled by, you know, some 95-year-old uh, woman who works and is the curator of the house. All the curators, the Henry Ford, right? Well, they're all people. Um, do you see the difficulty here? I can't experience the future. And so Hume says, given empiricism, I have no reason to believe that the future will be like the past. Does that make sense? You know, I, do we know, given empiricism, that the sun will rise tomorrow? Seems pretty likely, but, but I can't know it. I can't... What it comes down to, given empiricism, what can I know? <coughs> Nothing at all. Because I can't, I can't make any conclusions about anything. I can't... You know, how do I know that when I, when I move slightly this way, it's not going to change shapes entirely. My sense experience won't tell me what's going to happen in a millisecond from now. So if I put all my eggs in the empiricist basket, I've got real problems coming up with anything like knowledge. Right? I can't... So here's, here's one of the many problems. Empiricists deal with the many, right? I have all of these experiences. And what I need to make them useful is to be able to generalize into a universal, a one. So I see all of these things in the room. In order to make that useful, I need to have a category. And that category is desk. That's the one. The individual instances are the many. Okay, that's what we talk about the one and the many problem. 
The empiricist is trapped in the many, and he can never get to the one. Right? I drop the ball, I drop the ball, I drop the ball. As an empiricist, those are all discrete occurrences. And I can't generalize. Empirical data is just itself. Drawing conclusions from it is not empirical at that point. It's not justified given empiricism. All right. With me so far? Let's take it from the other side. We're Plato now. Right? We, we were just the empiricist. Now we're going to be the, the, the Platonist. Plato says, all right, that's a problem. Sense experience. You know, the, 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 the Greek philosophers that came before Plato, there were empiricists before Plato. Okay? You, you heard the expression, you can't step in the same river twice. That's empiricism. Does that make sense? Right? Here, here, why can't you step in the same river twice? Because it's always changing. It's always different. And, and, and so for it to be the same river, I have to have something stable. Well, what's stable? Something I can, I, it's internal, something in my head, right? Universals are, are invariant. They're, they're stable. I can put my, the, the desk in my head is an idea. It's stable. It doesn't, it doesn't change if I shift directions, right? The idea of desk, has a universality about it. I'm able to fix my attention on it. It's not constantly changing. So Plato says, you know, the, the empiricist over there is struggling in his world of constant flux. What he needs is something universal and invariant, something to put his head, you know, to set his mind at, because knowledge involves ideas. I can't get this thing in my head. What's in my head is an idea. And so ideas have to be what's real. Because if this is what's real and I can't get it in my head, I'm left with no knowledge. <coughs> right? Does that make sense? So if what's in my head is ideas, and I'm going to say that I know, what's in my head has to be what's real. So Pla Plato has, has to uh, explain. So the, here's the thing. The, the desk in my head. Let's, let's think about the desk in my head for a while. The desk in my head. We can't, I'm sorry, we can't because we can't. That's think. true. That, that, well, I'm going to give you an explanation why we might be able to. Okay? I'm going to be Plato and tell you why we can all think of the same desk. Uh, it's kind of a crazy thought, so you're going to have this is I'm sorry, on. But, no, no, you're good. So, uh, I got the idea. I, this is, so follow on how I'm using the word. The ideal desk. Right? It's a desk that is made up of idea. Right? So not necessarily, when I talk about the ideal desk, I'm not necessarily saying, whoa, that is a desk. But the ideal desk is the desk that is in the realm of ideas. Here's what Plato says. Plato says we used to live in the realm of ideas. Before we were born, we walked around in the realm of ideas. And then we were born into this material world. And, and so let, let's go with something a little simpler just to illustrate. Triangle, right? Triangle. So um, we're, in this, we're in this crazy material world, right? The world of shadows for Plato. This isn't the world of ideas. I can run into that desk. That's not an idea that hurts, right? So in our world of material things, I come across this. And I say, 
Wow, look at that. A triangle. Here's the problem. Is that the ideal triangle? Is that the ideal triangle up there? No, not by a long shot. <laughs> you know, if, if that's the ideal triangle, there's a lot of engineers out of work. Right? That's, that's, it, it's not a bad triangle, for those of you in the back of the room that it's kind of like. It, it's not a terrible triangle, but it's not good. You know? and it's, it's got three sides, but it doesn't even, frankly, it doesn't even connect. Um, so really, it's not even a triangle. But it's, it, here's the, so, so what Plato says is, it's, it's not worth my time. Are you ever going to see that shape ever again in your life? No, you're never going to see that exact, does it, does it help you at all to learn that thing? No, what helps you is to fix your mind on that eternal triangle that this is a poor, imperfect reflection of. Because the material world is full of poor, imperfect imitations of things that we've seen in our previous life in the world of ideas. And the reason I can, I can look at that and I can identify it is I already have in my, it reminds me, you know what, before I was born, I saw something, the triangle. That reminds me, and that's why we can all think of it, because we were all from the world of ideas. Our home and native land, the world of ideas. Right? So this is, this is Plato. Okay, this is Plato. I exaggerate just a bit, but it's, it's for teaching effect, right? So, um, here's the problem, Mr. Plato. Uh, Plato has in his mind the perfect triangle. And that's, that's good, right? For Plato, what, what does that accomplish? Well, it gives him something stable to set his mind on, right? That's a good thing. Here's the problem. Does Plato ever run across that perfect triangle in his real existence? So how does he know that that is associated with the ideal triangle? You see, he's got that thing. In, in other words, Plato has all this great, perfect knowledge, but he never runs into it in the real world. Right? You know, Plato has the idea of justice in his head, the perfect justice. Is there ever an experience you have in this world of perfect justice? No. <coughs> right? You, you see things and you, you call them just, but they're imperfect. How do you know that you can call that just? And so Plato is left, despite the fact that he's got, we, we spotted him a head start, he has perfect knowledge. He doesn't know anything in real existence. So, so Plato has the one, the, the perfect triangle, but he doesn't have the many. He can't get down to particulars, right? He's got universals, universals in one. I use those in the same way. But he can't get to the many or to the particulars. Use those in the same way. So the appearances starts with the particulars, the many. He can't get to the one. Plato has the one. He can't get to the many. Does that make sense at all? So they're both left. In the final, and this is a super oversimplified history of philosophy, but the rationalist and the empiricist are both left as utter skeptics. They can't know anything. Now, this, is, this is the history of philosophy right here. I mean, philosophers have sat around talking about these basic ideas and permutations of them for, for 3,000 years now and they can't make any progress. All right. If 
if I start with the ideas, I can't get to the particulars. If I start with the particulars, I can't get to the ideas. Not justifiably. I can, I can assume that I do. Right? And that's, that's essentially what people do, right? We assume that, you know, I squeezed the toothpaste yesterday, and what happened? Toothpaste came out. So I, I never operate on the assumption, you know, maybe if I squeeze the toothpaste today, I'm going to turn into a giraffe. Right? We can't live that way. We assume the future will be like the past. We make all these gratuitous assumptions, but really, given what we say how, on the basis of what we know, Right? If you talk to 99 out of 100 people at your job and you ask, how do you know things? And they would say, sense experience. But the reality is they can't get around and do the things they think they can do on the basis of sense experience. They can't do it. They can't prove anything. In fact, all of the most important things about life are not provable on the basis of sense experience. Things like truth or love the existence of other people. Not provable on the basis of sense experience. Right? So people are making gratuitous... They're shortcutting. They're, you know, people don't think about their philosophy very often. You know, you've got very, it's, it's nerds like me who sit around and think about their epistemology. But most people aren't, aren't troubled by their epistemology. You know, I'm going to spend half time in this book on thinking epistemology. You know, most people aren't like that, right? Um... But it's worth bringing to someone's attention. And we'll talk about how I think we should bring it to their attention. So, so what we've sought to establish here is the unbeliever's philosophical predicament, right? He can't unite the one and the many. He can't bring them together. And so not being able to bring them together he can't justify his believing anything. Um, it, 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 I'll, I'll give you a sneak preview where we're going to go. Here's, we've been very abstract. Let's be a little practical. Okay, let's be a little practical. One of the big universals that people need for their day-by-day are moral universals. Okay, and I, I would argue in terms of practical apologetics, morality is where we should camp because it's going to be the most useful. So here's the question I, I like asking just as an example in my classes. If I want, I, I'm going to walk up to the unbeliever now. Okay? I'm a, I'm a, you, you be the unbeliever, I'll be the Christian apologist. All right? And here's my question for you, Mr. Unbeliever. Given your worldview, why shouldn't I punch you in the nose? Given your worldview, give me a moral reason. Give me, give me the ethical basis for me not punching you in the nose. So give me some answers. How, if you're an unbeliever, how would you answer that question? Why shouldn't I punch you in the nose? Well, well I'd probably punch, punch you back. Yeah, I'll punch you back. And, and so the basis of ethics is what? Given that answer, the basis of, basis of ethics is what? Strongest guy determines ethics. Do we really believe that? Does the unbeliever really believe that whoever is that's got the biggest muscles is the one that determines what's really right. So, so in other words, if I'm the bigger guy, you know, if, if Alicia hits me in the nose and I just haul off and clock her in the nose, is that right because I'm bigger? Well, the unbeliever doesn't believe that, right? He doesn't believe. And, and, and in fact, you could multiply examples. You know, all you have to do is say, um, 
you know, the fact that his boss has more power than he does, and the boss treated him unfairly, does that make it right because the boss can get away with it? And, and what's his answer going to be? Yeah, you better believe not. You know, he shorted me my paycheck. That's not right. Hey, if he got away with it, it makes it right. You know, you said might make no. You know, he, as soon as it's about him, it doesn't seem right anymore. Okay, so that's one possible answer. Might makes right, but he doesn't believe that, right? He doesn't believe. Give me another answer. What 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 other things might the unbeliever appeal to for why it's wrong for me to punch him in the nose? I'll sue you. I'll sue you. So really, it's it's illegal, right? That, that it is, it's illegal for you to do that. So we, do we believe that morality is determined by law? Well, come up with it. Some, some people probably do. Some people probably, but, but very, very rarely. So you ask the average American, when slavery was legal in this country, was it right? Right? And, and most people would say, obviously, no. All you have to do is, is come up with an example of a place that has law, you know, was it, was it legal for us to throw off the, the British Empire? I don't think it was legal. <laughs> um, you know, and, and we could get into that whole discussion, but, but the, the, the point is, most people have people that they admire for having thrown off laws that they considered unjust, right? And I, and I can find them all over the place, right? I, I can even find them in places that I would disagree with the person. Let's say she's a radical feminist. And so I cite people from feminist history that, that disobeyed certain laws to make a point. And, and, and all I'm doing there is showing she doesn't believe, this person that I'm talking to, doesn't believe that law determines morality. Whether or not I agree with the example or not is irrelevant. I've, I've dismantled that possibility given her worldview. Does that make sense? Give me another thing that the unbeliever might say. Makes it wrong for me to punch him in the nose. How about, how about this one? It would make me unhappy if you punched me in the nose. Right? I mean, that's, that's fair, right? It would, it would really make me unhappy if you punched me in the nose. Well, here's my counter-argument. It makes me enormously happy to punch you in the nose. <laughs> enormously happy. I'm happier punching you in the nose than you are unhappy being punched in the nose. Do they buy that one? No. Um, the, very similar to might makes right combined with law makes right. Well, the consensus of, of people, you know, don't like being punched in the nose. Well, at one point, the consensus of people in Germany decided Jews weren't people. Does that make it okay? If, if we took a worldwide referendum and, and voted, are the Jews people? There's a decent chance the vote would come back no. Decent chance. Right? Does that make it right? No. We don't believe that. See, the unbeliever is hard-pressed. Do you see how this is a one-in-the-many problem? What is the particular? Me punching him in the nose. That's a particular act. What's he trying to get to? A universal, right? Punching people in the nose for no reason is wrong. But given his worldview, he can't get there. Can't, he can't get there. Do you see this? Does, does that make a little bit more sense practically? That, that what I'm seeking to do is show the unbeliever that things he knows he knows, he can't justify on his own worldview. Now, on my worldview, why is it wrong for me to punch him in the nose? Ultimately, the answer is because God said not to. Right? 
and, and, and that's a, that's a, that is a, given my worldview, okay? I, I'm assuming, you see how I'm presupposing my worldview? I'm not proving it. But I'm, I'm going to tell him, listen, if you presuppose my worldview, there is a reason that I shouldn't hit you in the nose. And it makes sense. Given the, given the Christian framework, that, that is a justified belief. I shouldn't punch you in the nose. It is revealed from God. It's not something I have to deduce from nature. It's not something that I have to somehow uh, uh, come to that conclusion after 84,000 times of being punched in the nose. I come to the conclusion, you know what? This isn't right. You know, it's, it's, it's revealed. And it's true. And he knows it. No pun intended on the nose. He knows it, right? But his worldview can't account for it. If we go the other way, now th- this doesn't happen much, but let's 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 play with it. Let's say, let's say he's a Platonist, right? You don't run into these again. Nine hundred ninety-nine. I, I heard someone say the other day, I love this. Ninety-nine out of ninety-nine people you meet <laughs> will be empiricists, right? But let's say this guy's a rationalist. He says, I know it's wrong for people to be punched in the nose because there is an immutable law of the universe. It is wrong for one person to unnecessarily punch another person in the nose. Okay, let's say he says he knows that. So we can play it from the other side. I hold back and hit him in the face. <laughs> right? And he says, no, that was wrong. And I say, how do you know that that was an instance of one person hitting another person in the nose without justification. Well, that's very hard to define, right? I mean, how do you know that I'm a person? It, with all those terms, that, you know, your great universal principle of it is wrong for one person to hit another person in the nose without justification, it's very hard for you to... And, and we see this in our legal system, right? We have laws against... Uh, corruption. Well, how do we know that this particular act was an act of corruption? Right? We have a law against murder. Well, how do you know that this particular... And sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's a very, very difficult question. Right? You have a situation where someone broke into another person's home and uh, maybe they they were leaving and the homeowner shot him as they were leaving. Is that murder or is that self-defense? That's a good question, right? So we may have our absolute principle, but how do I know that this particular event is actually an example of the universal principle? Morality is a very, very practical way to go in terms of our apologetic because here's, here's the fun part. Okay, here's what's fun. 99 out of 99 people that you meet again, right? As you're on, as, as you're at work, do they believe in moral absolutes? Will they say they believe in moral absolutes? Yeah. I, I think most people would say, at least most people in my experience would say, no, they, they, there's no moral absolutes. You know, it, 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 what's good for one person? It's relative, right? Relativism is the order of the day, right? Uh, what's, this is it's situational. Everything's situational. What's good for you in this circumstance may not be good for me in that circumstance. It's all relative. Funny, though, they never believe it's, it's, it could be relatively good for me to hit him in the face. Oddly. 
right? They, they never believe relatively it could have been a good thing for me to key their car. Right? The, the most hardened relativist, when his family gets kidnapped, is bothered by that. Because he knows better. Right? Every professed relativist is really an absolutist at heart. Why? Why does he know moral absolutes exist? What's the, what's the biblical answer? He's an image bearer of God, and he knows better. He may believe the truth is relative, right? But he knows better. You know, so, so you tell him, given your worldview, you can't know anything. And he says, okay, I'm cool with that. I'm a postmodern, right? We don't believe in truth anyway. But the reality, does he believe in truth? Yes, because he's talking to you. <laughs> right? When he opens his mouth, and this, I'm, I'm, I'm tipping my hand a little more, preview what's coming up. The whole idea of a transcendental argument for the existence of God is that for the unbeliever to argue against God's existence, he already has to presuppose that God exists. Do you see that? He can't argue against God's existence on his worldview because he can't argue on his worldview. He can't talk. He, the, the, the idea, he can't predicate one thing of another. He can't say, this is true given his worldview. So in order for him to open his faith, God has to exist. Every atheistic argument presupposes theism. That's devastating, isn't it? That's presuppositional apologetics right there. The devastating argument is that every atheistic argument presupposes theism. Do you see why that is? So, We've, we've presented the one in the many problem. Why is it that God is the answer to the one in the many problem? Okay, we, need to, we need to finish this part of the conclusion. The one in the many problem exists any time man, man tries to make himself autonomous. Okay? Important word, autonomous. What does it mean? What does it mean to be autonomous? Yeah, it means self-rule, literally, something like that. Right? As Baptists, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. What does that mean? There's no structure over the local church that tells it what to do. Right? The church is its own rule. Um, but when people try to make themselves autonomous, this is exactly what Eve did in the garden, right? She, she moved from a position of saying, I will think God's thoughts after him because he's God and I'm not, to saying, I'm going to consider God as one of the possibilities. That's autonomy. That's a move of autonomy. And this is why we talked about last week, neutrality is always negation of God. Neutrality is never neutral, right? In order for me to move to neutrality, I have to throw off God's authority. Right? As soon as I do that, I'm left in the throes of a one-in-the-many problem. You, you see, you, right? We've talked about it. If I start from my sense experience, I can never get to universals. If I start with universals, I never know if I see them in my sense experience. And so the, so the unbeliever, when, when he tries to operate as if he's the final authority in the universe, is left in a mess. Okay? Given a Christian framework, why, do, why am I so confident that I can know things? if the unbeliever is in such a mess. The reason I'm so confident is this. I don't, I don't know 
that the desk, I'm not confident that the desk is there because I'm here and I see the desk there and so it must be there. As though, so we, we talked about this earlier. God knowing my car is in the parking lot. Does God know that because he saw my car in the parking lot? And the answer is no. God knows my car is in the parking lot because he said my car is in the parking lot. Right? There's a huge difference there. I can be confident that I can know that my car is in the parking lot not because my mind is the final authority. Remember, if my mind is the final authority, can I know my car is in the parking lot? I can know if I can think God's thoughts after him. Because here's, here's, the, here's the final uh, issue. God knows the ultimate relations of all the ones and all the many. Right? I can't keep track of them. I can't even know the relationship between these two desks. But you know, God knows every detail about these desks. So he knows every way they are relevantly similar and every difference between them. Right? And so, uh, at, at, at some points they are very, very similar. At some points they may be different. Right? I, I, last time I taught apologetics, it was as our college was moving campuses. And when our college was moving campuses, as, as uh, it, it part of the move, we were moving some of our furniture, but not all of it. And so there would be two desks in the room, and one would have a little sticker on it, and one wouldn't. Okay? Now, in a normal scenario, if you walked into this room and there was a sticker on this desk and not on this desk, you would say those are both desks. They're both exactly the same for all practical purposes. But in that particular scenario, that sticker made all the difference between the desk that was moving and the desk that was staying. Right? Relevant similarity, relevant differences, is very much dependent on the circumstances. Right? But God knows them all. God knows them because he's decreed them in God's universe because all of reality is pre-interpreted, right? Would, would, would reality have meaning if I didn't exist in a Christian universe? Is my existence necessary in a Christian universe? No, I am not necessary. God's necessary, I'm not. If I didn't exist, would the universe have meaning? Why does the universe have meaning? Because God has given it meaning, right? In an atheist universe where I'm the final reference point, if I don't exist, does the universe have meaning? No. The universe only has whatever meaning I give it in an atheist universe. And, and so ultimately, ultimately, the atheist is left with no meaning at all. On God's universe, because reality comes pre-interpreted, I have the possibility of rationality because I can think God's thoughts after. Does it mean that I'm right about everything? No. By no means. Right? I am not right about everything. Um, I'm probably wrong about more things than I'm right about. Right? Um, but I can know. And there's certain things that I can know certainly. Right? What things can I know certainly? The things that God has told me. I can know certain things because I can think God's thoughts after him. The universe is rational. It's not just sound and fury signifying nothing, which is what it is on the empiricist worldview. Right? Given empiricism, 
that it's all kind of buzzing, blooming experience, but, but I can't interpret any of it. Is the atheist thinking God's thoughts after him, but just doesn't realize it? Uh, yes, he's borrowing from the Christian worldview, and that's our apologetic is designed to expose the unbeliever for the thief that he is. Borrowing is a nice way of saying it. stealing from the Christian worldview. And 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 what I'm doing is I'm trying. Really, what I'm going to do when I do apologetics is pit the unbeliever against himself. Do you see how I did that with the punch him in the nose thing? Really, the issue is not, I'm going to punch you in the nose. It's not me threatening physical violence, right? That's not apologetics. That's Islam. Um, <coughs> but, <laughs> anyway, um, when I do apologetics, though, I am taking what the unbeliever really knows and pitting it against what the unbeliever says he knows. And I want to leave him conflicted. Actually, I want to leave him believing. But if he's not going to believe, I want to leave him torn. Because he is convinced that, that there can't be morality, right? Because if there's absolute morality, what's his position? He's liable to judgment. I thought you wanted to leave him torn with a bloody nose. Well, that too. Okay. Right, yeah. No, so, so I, I, I bring all these things up to the unbeliever. And, and you know, he is convinced you know, morality is, is just a social convention, and I show him, given that framework, he, he can't believe that being punched in the nose is wrong. And he walks away and he's like, I know that it's wrong for me to be punched in the nose, but my worldview doesn't account for that. Right? You see how I'm telling you? It's, it's not me versus him at that point. And honestly, a lot of what I do in apologetics is ask questions. You see that? Because, again, do most people sit around and think about their basis of ethics or their epistemology? But if I get them to ask themselves questions about it, it should trouble them. It should trouble them. Now, the reality is, in our society, odds are, instead of thinking about it, they're going to turn the TV back on. Because that's what people do. They drug themselves away from uncomfortable thoughts. Sometimes literally, sometimes figures. Right? But that's what I'm doing in apologetics. I'm, he is trying to suppress the truth by means of his unrighteousness, and I'm picking his hand up and letting those things pop back up. And he's going to try to put them back down. You know, he's, he's like the kid in, with the, the, the dikes in Amsterdam, putting his finger in all the holes. And I just keep pulling his hand away from the wall, <laughs> letting more water in. I'm pitting him against himself. I'm pitting him against the God he knows that he can't escape from. Uh, and, and the way I'm doing it is showing that what he thinks about reality doesn't account for what he knows about reality. Um, and, and so, any, any more thoughts or questions about that? I, I would argue that the Christian Trinity is the, the, the answer to the one and the many problem because God is both one and many. And, and so the trick question here, what is more ultimate in God? His... his Unity or his plurality? And the answer is... Yes. Yes. That is the orthodox answer. Thank you. Yeah, God is not more ultimately one, and he's not more ultimately three. If he's more ultimately one, we deny that he's triune. If he's more ultimately three, we deny that he's one God. Right? And we can't do either of those. God is 
perfectly one and perfectly three. Now, do I get that? Not any more than I get any other one in the many problem. But God does. And so, I can think his thoughts after him. And I can know things, even if they don't ultimately make sense to me. So, so here's, here's the summary of the whole matter. In the unbeliever's universe, when he's autonomous, right, the unbeliever sets himself up as a law to himself, a moral law, an intellectual law to himself. If the unbeliever is the final standard for morality or rationality, if he doesn't know something, it is ultimately unknown. Does that make sense? If he's the final authority and he doesn't know, it's unknown. It is irrational. There's, there are pockets, huge pockets. The majority of the universe is irrational if he doesn't have his mind on it. But given a Christian worldview, are there things I don't know and that don't make sense to me? Does that make them irrational? Why? Because something can be a mystery without being... But, but why, why is it not ultimate mystery for me? Well, because we know God said it. Because God knows it. Does, does that make sense? In the unbelieving universe, if I'm the final reference point, if there's mystery, it's ultimate. There's, no, there's nothing I can appeal to beyond me. And so I never know, as an unbeliever, if I squeeze my toothpaste tube, I might turn into a giraffe. Right? Because, because there's things I don't know, and, and one of those things I don't know may come up and bite me at the most inconvenient moment. But on a Christian framework, what I don't know is known by God. And so the universe isn't ultimately irrational. It's ultimately rational, even when I don't get it. And so here's, here's the fun part. When the, when the unbeliever, mystery in his universe is fatal. For the Christian, mystery in my universe is necessary. Because if I understood it all, I'd be God. And that undermines the Christian worldview. So when he says, well, you don't understand everything either, I say, exactly. But that's a proof of Christianity, not a defeater. Right? Any, any questions? We're, we're a little bit over time, but I'll take a, maybe a question or two. I, my, I'm assuming your brains are full. Yes? If you were to ask a non-believer, do you love anyone? And they said yes, and then you could say why? Yep. That's a, that's a very, very, I think that's a very, very effective apologetic. Because on an unbelieving worldview, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, a marriage ceremony, when unbelievers get married, or when unbelievers go to a funeral, none of that makes sense. The value, we, we, the unbeliever has no basis for meaning in his universe, and yet he thinks things that he does are meaningful, right? He thinks that when he accomplishes something that's, that's legitimate and he feels proud of that, that only makes sense if he's an imago Dei, if he's, if he's an image bearer. It doesn't make sense on an unbeliever. You know, when, you know no lion is like, all right, kill number 77. <laughs> right? Uh, if we're all bags of, what one bag of meat does to another bag of meat is, has a, no ultimate consequence. But, but we think it does. We think it does. Because it does. Our worldview accounts for it. His worldview doesn't. Good. That's, that's actually exactly right. Right? Yes? So why would there ever be an issue of someone uh, 
like Columbine. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't even worry about it. What do you mean we shouldn't worry about it? As an unbeliever, why, how can you hold, uphold it? An yep. unbeliever, yep. Columbine, the killing, yep. the murdering, the, the, the walking it off. It's exactly what you would expect. Yeah, well, it, it, the, the point is it means nothing. <laughs> I mean, nothing. You're, it, 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 but it, 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 it,